Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. For today's podcast, Studio HFL, Higher, Faster, Louder, it's my pleasure to welcome Tony Plogue to the program. And, uh, well, we had, I think, a pretty good morning. I've really enjoyed the master class you presented earlier today here. And uh, some of these questions might be redundant because we might cover the same some of the same material, but that's fine. Our listener yeah. will be the first time that they uh, may have heard this. So, again, welcome. Thank you. And uh, tell us a little bit about where you are and what you're doing as a composer slash teacher, slash trumpet player these days. Okay, well, I've, I live in, in Freiburg, Germany. I've been in Germany for, or in Europe at least, since 1990. Uh, my wife were, and I first moved to Malmö, Sweden. We were there for a couple of, of uh, years and spent about four months in Italy, and then I got the job in Freiburg. So we've lived in Freiburg uh, since about 1993. Um, <clears throat> right now, um, I'm just sort of the, at the tail end of a, a tour of the United States, um, about six weeks, I was in Montauk, Long Island with my wife working on a house, and then I uh, spent 10 days hiking the John Muir Trail with some relatives, which was uh, incredible scenery and incredibly strenuous for me, at least, I think for everybody else as well. And so now I'm just doing a little bit of master classes and, and mm-hmm. teaching. So no composing right now because I'm just on the road. Uh, when I get back, then I'm going to be doing some revisions um, on a trombone sonata that I wrote for Toby Oft of the Boston Symphony. And when is that due to be premiered? Um, he's talking about doing it sometime in the spring. He doesn't have a specific date yet, but sometime in the spring. With full orchestra or piano? It's just piano, yeah. Yeah, just a sonata. So I'm curious about your your hiking through the Sierras. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, do you totally unplug when you're out doing uh, that? Or? Yeah, I do, yeah. And... and Basically, everybody else did with the exception of one person. There were five of us on the trail. And this one person is really technologically adept, shall we say. And, and so he had, he had an app actually to help, help us find the trail and, you know, in case we got lost. And I think at night he would maybe listen to something to go to sleep. But the rest of us uh, had no contact with the outer world outside of people that we would just see on the trail. What's and, that feel like? It was great. I mean, the thing that's that I like so much about hiking, and I, I'm not able to do it that often, is life is very simple. Things are slower when you get up in the morning. We would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and it would take us really about two hours to get out of camp, to, to make breakfast and to break down the tent and do all that stuff. shouldn't take that long, but it does, you know, without... We're not dragging our heels, but we're not rushing either. Sure. And then you spend the day just walking, mm-hmm. basically, and occasionally you'll stop at a lake for an hour, you know, when you want to take a break and, and admire the scenery, which is really stupendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get into camp about five or six, you set up, you have a freeze-dried dinner, uh, and and we were in bed by 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. So, so, I know so like different with- schedule. With Boundary Waters, there are people that have told me that you have to register and then you carry in and carry out everything. Is that the same sort of yeah, there? Yeah, you, um, yeah, you have to register. And um, 
most people or a lot of people like to hike the entire John Muir Trail, which is 211 miles. We did about half of it, and we came in uh, to the trail at the middle of the trail. If you want to come in from Yosemite, which is for most people the beginning of the trail, the northern part of the trail, um, it's extremely difficult to get a to get a permit. But you have to be self-contained. There are a lot of rules, as I just mentioned. This uh, bear canister, you have to have a bear canister. Um, I don't want to get too graphic here, but you have to uh, carry out your toilet paper. Sure. <laughs> so, so you have two bags. One has baking soda in it where you put the toilet paper, and then you put that inside of another bag. And when you go to sleep at night, you have to put anything that smells uh, like food or whatever in your uh, bear canister. So that bag goes in along with your with your food. So, yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is, it's yeah. Primitive, but, exactly. Uh, but so it's, it's great. It's wonderful. We, reinvigorating, rejuvenating? I mean, are these the kind of things you go to do this for, or is it just an escape? Or? I, I, well, I'm not sure that it's an escape, because I think I like the life that I have, but it's just, I don't know why. I guess it's it's a it's a goal, and the for me, there's something about the Sierras that is really deep inside me, and I'm not sure why, mm. but I've written three or four pieces based on the writings of John Muir, and for me, it's especially, for example, we were at one place where we, where we uh, camped was uh, Upper Cathedral Lake. And you see Cathedral Peak, which actually looks sort of like a cathedral. And when the st- sun starts to set on that, it's really, it's magical. And it's, it, to me, it feels very spiritual. So there's a, a quote that I love, and this is actually the, the title of an oratorio that I wrote. Um, from John Muir, <clears throat> it's called, this oratorio is called God's First Temples. And the quote is, um, the hills and groves were God's first temples, and the more they are cut down and hewn into cathedrals and churches, the farther off and dimmer seems the Lord himself. Um, and Muir was a very religious man, um, and still he had this feeling about the spirituality of the mountains. So um, for me, there's sort of a spiritual aspect to it. The, the day-to-day aspect is that it's just a long, hard slog up a, a lot of hills, um, and you're tired an awful lot of the time, but then you, you go into a stream. If, and I was, I was able to get half of my body in one of these ice-cold streams, so I didn't do very well. But still, I mean, something like that is really in, invigorating. Have you done any other, like, a, is it Pacific Crest or the Appalachia uh, Trail? John Muir Trail is a very small portion of the Pacific Crest Trail. Oh, okay. um, Pacific Crest is from Mexico to Wash- to Canada, mm-hmm. and the first 700 miles are in the desert. Um, so, Are you inclined at all to, to uh, No, I, I would say not. I mean, if I was much yeah, younger... It might inspire some very different pieces of uh, yeah, music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, I, no, I mean, I... I think I'm probably too old to do that now. I mean, I like to challenge myself and everything, but um, one of the people on, on the trail, I'm now 70, and, and one of the people on tr- that did this trip um, is 60, and he said, when I'm 65, I want to do the whole JMT, the whole wow. John Muir Trail, which is, if you're doing the average, which is pushing, uh, mm-hmm. that's about 21 days. So if I can, in the next five years, get in better shape than I'm in now, We'll see. Then maybe I'll do do uh, the entire GMT. That that would be fun. But the Pacific Trail or Appalachian Trail? No, I don't think so. Back in Germany, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of great scenery there. A lot of oh, really places. great! Have yeah. You, have you hiked? Yeah, actually, I have. Um, just in training for the GMT. I we live in Koppel, which is a very small dorf or village right outside of Freiburg, and right where we live is basically the Black Forest. So within Five minutes, I'm climbing uphill through the forest. So that's a great place for training and really beautiful scenery. On a regular basis, are you able to get out into the well, black forest? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, we're in the black forest. Oh, you're really there. Yeah, we're, oh, yeah, we're really there. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, in, in, in preparation for this hike, I, I was doing a lot of, yeah, a lot of walking. So, so you, you said you're here to tour the States. So, mm-hmm. business and pleasure. Exactly, yeah. For all of that. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah. So you've lived in Europe for now, forgive me, you, you said this... Uh, yeah, about 28 years, 28 I'd say. Years. Yeah, and I was in... Before that? I was in Sweden for two years, and then Italy for about four months, and then um, Freiburg ever since. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. So um, I learned this morning that uh, 2001 is when you uh, retired, as you said, from mm-hmm. playing trumpet. Yeah. Uh, but you still teach. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... 
tell me um, all what levels uh, players come to you? Do you teach all levels? And uh, do you look for certain students with certain learning styles? Who, who makes a good connection with you as a student and a teacher? Well, I think over the years I've sort of developed a philosophy of, of teaching, uh, which is that I would like to be able to be a great teacher for every student, and I don't think that's possible because, let's say, one of my areas where I'm lacking expertise is um, if there are chop problems, if somebody needs to change his or her embouchure. I really don't feel qualified to do that, and that, that's a life-changing experience, and, and I don't want to have somebody's life in my hands where I feel like I'm not competent to, to help them. Um, so what I feel is, even though I can't be a great teacher for everybody, although I'd like to try, is I think I can be a great helper for everybody. Mm -hmm. So if, if I have a student who I feel I can only help to a certain point, I have a pretty good idea of, of who I can send them to that can help them you know, further their progress or if they have a specific problem, can help with that problem. Um, in terms of the students that I take, I mean, right now, I essentially for, I think, 20 years or so, I taught at the Musikhochschule in Freiburg. So those were people who either, basically most of them wanted to be professional players, and a few of them wanted to be teachers. And when I taught in Oslo, um, it was the same thing. A few wanted to be teachers, and most wanted to be professional players. So you're dealing with people who are who, if they have issues, they're, well, they're major maybe to them, right? Mm -hmm. But they're, you're, they're not coming to you with uh, major faults in their playing. They're already coming as well-refined and well-defined players. Usually, yeah, usually, usually. So where do your strengths lie? Let's say you're not comfortable with the embouchure change, but where do you mm -hmm. feel like your strengths as an educator lie? Is it... Wow, that, that's interesting. That's, you know, that's almost like asking somebody, or at least for me, I... I I can certainly remember my bad concerts a lot more than my good concerts. <laughs> I, I don't know if that rings true with you, but but well, yeah, but yeah. that's a help too. I mean, the, I think yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure what what my strengths are. Um, I mean, a sense of humor is, I'm sure, not a strength for teaching, but I think that's pretty good. My wife and I, I would disagree. My I, wife and children would disagree with me. <laughs> they don't think I'm so funny, but um, I'm. I'm not sure what my strengths are. I think maybe, and this is really a cliche or a generalization, but maybe musicality and think, trying to think more deeply about musicality, what does a piece mean, or why should a Baroque piece or can a Baroque piece be phrased differently than you would phrase a modern piece. Um, but also I think... The, the teaching that I had when I was young from, as an example, Irving Bush or James Stamp or Tom Stevens, um, I think influences and informs an awful lot of what I teach. So for people who want to be professional players, and we're talking about classical players, um, I work a lot with transposition, with, uh, you know, all the sort of physical things and fundamental things that you have to do to be a player. And then, of course, literature and things like that. So you mentioned now two of those names I know very well. Of course, mm -hmm. Tom Stevens and, and Jimmy Stamp. Mm -hmm. The third person that you mentioned that you studied with, yeah, that Irving Bush. Um, Irving was was a very well known um, trumpet teacher and trumpet player. He he actually for a while was Nat King Cole's personal trumpet player, right. and then for many years played second in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. um, he actually had his own line of, of uh, mouthpieces, Bush uh, yeah. brass mouthpieces. Um, and, and so, for example, like the Los Angeles Philharmonic, when they would do, like, Pops concerts or where they lead it, needed, like, lead-type playing, Irving would do that. Mm -hmm. if, if you have heard the West Side Story, symphonic dances from West Side Story with Bernstein conducting the L.A. Phil, that's Irving playing lead. No kidding. Yeah, on that. Well, I'm yeah. going to have to go back and listen to that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's great. And, he's, and it's really, like, lead-type playing, but Irving was the, the most soft-spoken Man, you know, you, you would sure. find both he and, and, and Bob Duvall, who was the principal at that time, mm -hmm. uh, were great. So Irving, um, I was really lucky because my father, I think, was uh, Irving's maybe first teacher or second teacher when he was a little kid. And Irving and my brother, um, who's, who's quite a bit older than myself, were best friends. So because of a family connection, I got to take lessons from, from Irving for mm -hmm. about seven years. 
seven, eight years, something like that. And so he, he worked with me on all the fundamentals and transposition and, you know, tonguing, slurring, all that kind of stuff, and was a great teacher. Where, what age were you in this? Well, I started when I was 10, started playing trumpet when I was 10, and I, maybe, I, maybe I was 12 when I went to Irving, 12 or 13. And I guess now that I think of it, maybe I was around 19, um, Irving said, there's this new uh, trumpet player in town who's playing third trumpet with the L.A. Philharmonic, and I want you to stop taking lessons with me and take lessons from this new third trumpet player. And at the time, when he said that, I was sort of hurt because I thought maybe he didn't like me anymore as a student, you know, or, or something yeah. like that. Um, but that's, that's, that was a really good lesson for me that I've learned and tried to apply now in my life, which is always don't hog a student or don't try to keep a student for yourself. Try to send a student to as many different people as you can. And it turned out that this new third trumpet player um, in the LA Philharmonic was Tom Stevens. And, <laughs> and uh, so that was great. That was a great experience, studying yeah. with Tom. Yeah, where did Jim Stan come along? Well, I, I, um, after I had studied with Tom... I had a roommate who was a wonderful trumpet player, Russ Kidd, still still a good friend. And um, Russ had taken from Jimmy Stamp, and I, I forget if I was complaining daily about my chops or whatever, but he said, you know, you should take some lessons from Stamp, and because Stamp was very popular in L.A. In those days, he was just sort of an L.A. phenomenon. Um, he wasn't really known nationwide or internationally. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, and so I got some lessons from Stamp, too, and that was great. So thinking about those three teachers, and you had mentioned that Bush had started working with transposition, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm curious, is that out of a Soxa book or just taking the art No, actually, I, I think with um, with Irving, it was out of the Caffarelli mm. book. Oh, great book. Yeah, great. and then and then when I went with Tom, then it was Soxa, mm-hmm. and he just killed me. Yeah. So yeah. Vinny put the, the, that's where we started, Vince Martino was my first okay. teacher, and uh-huh. he put the Soxa in front of me, and I just, I think I... I went into the fetal position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the first lesson I had with yeah. Tom, he said, um, so Irving says you're really good at transposition. And, you know, I was sort of like humble bragging. I said, well, yeah, I guess, okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he said, okay, um, so I read this so I read this in D flat. And I said, uh, well, I've actually, I've never done D flat before. And so that was sort of the beginning. So what I did that summer when I was staying with Tom is he'd give me, I think he'd give me maybe three or four uh, transposition etudes to do, and I was practicing six hours a day that summer. And so I would, I'd, I'd like maybe do a warm up, and then I'd, I'd just flip to a page randomly in the Soxa book, maybe of the right hand, and say, okay, this is going to be the right hand side. Flip to a page and sight read it in F, mm-hmm. and then I'd work on something else. Twenty minutes later, flip to a page and sight read it in E, and I'd go all the way from F down to G flat every day, sight reading. And and what Tom said, and I think this is a really good way to learn transposition, is learn, like if your teacher gives you a transposition etude to do, learn that almost from memory. So mm-hmm. there's almost by rote, but then when you sight read, just go straight through. And and like Tom, Tom would say, if you miss it, you have to live with it. You know, don't correct yourself. Don't go back and correct yourself. Do it like it's a concert. And I think a, a good idea is to uh, pick something or a book where it's challenging, where you're going to make a few mistakes, um, but not so challenging that every measure is a disaster. Sure. So you're working on some more advanced techniques with transposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's your playing at this point? Are you are you trying to fix any? You mean issues? when I was a student, or yes, or, and I, and or, I, or and I don't want you to divulge anything you're not comfortable divulging. But no, you that's know, okay. I mean, you know, we all have certain things we have to shore up on our playing, and I'm curious. Sure. Were, was there something in your playing that you felt? Boy, I really got to get this addressed. <laughs> Was there not something in my yeah. plan? Um, I think. I, I think maybe there was not something that was really major, like chop problems. I always felt like when I was young that I had chop problems, but I, I eventually got talked out of that by by people. You know, so like just play. You mm-hmm. know, um, I never had. I felt like a really good high register. I had one lesson with Adolf Herseth, and I asked him, and he said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, in the upper register, I tend to smile. What should I do? And he said, don't smile. Yeah. <laughs> Sage. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and Tom used to get on, I mean, he got on my case all about a lot of things, but um, in terms of physical things, just that my sound was a little bit light, had a tendency to be a little bit light. And I think as I got older, my sound 
let's say, matured or got to have more depth to it. But early on, I mean, he kept telling me, you need to do more push-ups. You know, it's his way of saying, you know, you need to get a bigger sound. Was his a teaching style more of modeling, or was was he a, a, an in-depth explanation kind of person when he taught? Or um, did you play it with me? Did you play things together quite a bit? We No, we didn't play things together, I don't think at all. I mean, he would demonstrate for me, and it was just phenomenal. I mean, it, just, it was so great. And, you know, and so that's, that's kind of where I'm, I'm going with podcasts like this, is finding out learning styles. Because, yeah. you know, we've got people who are visual, people yeah. who are oral, people who yeah. are tactile. Yeah. And people who, uh, I have a student, and I've mentioned this before on a podcast, but uh, he's too smart for his own good. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he likes to overanalyze things. Right, right. And, uh, uh, sometimes I have to tell him think like a sixth grader. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's let's just simplify. Yeah. Uh, so you're so you're I mean I, I had with chop issues. You're 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 pretty well along in the progress uh, process here, mm-hmm. and you're growing and thinking of becoming a full time orchestral player. Was that kind of the goal? Yeah, I think early on, I, yeah, for sure, I wanted to, to play in orchestras. Um, yeah, absolutely. And Herseth was my hero, and you know, pretty standard stuff. So who, aside from uh, Herseth, who had you heard, either live or on recording, that, that you thought, oh my gosh, that's it? Yeah. Well, all, I mean, the thing is, all, all the major trumpet players in those, those days were like heroes to me. So in those days, when I was a student, it was Gatal in Boston, sure. Gil Johnson in Philadelphia, Edelstein in Cleveland, um, Lockyano in New York, that was before Phil Smith, and, of course, Herseth in, in um, Chicago. And they were all like gods to me, sure. you know. And I had the chance to meet a couple of them just to shake their hand after a concert or something like that, you know, which would be like some kid going up to Ted Williams or, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, a great baseball player. Or, well, that's me right now sitting here with you. That's well, how, I, how I feel about <laughs> You this. should not feel that way about oh, me. No. Well, uh, not at all. But, I mean, that's the way I felt this as a, as a kid. I mean, I was... For me, the trumpet players, it would, it would be like a kid having baseball cards or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. And so um, anybody who played in an orchestra, the big word in those days was heavy. You know, they were a heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so it was, a, it was a great time. And I was, it's interesting because I, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I think it's, I think it's really valuable to try and have as broad a life as you can and to read as much as you can and experience as much as you can. You know, like hiking the, the John Muir Trail has nothing to do with, with playing the trumpet. Um, but at the same time, when I was young, I was in a way very limited. All I did was practice and, you know, but my being limited in those days actually has enabled me to have a broader life than I ever could have dreamed of having because I've been able to travel around the world as a trumpet player or, or as a musician. And um, and so I, I actually don't regret those four or five years of just, you know, having the blinders on and just being obsessed with the trumpet. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about, I, I've heard people that I've interviewed talk about Gitala and Bozan and how distinct their sound was. When you mm-hmm. heard, you knew, oh, that's the New York Philharmonic. Oh, yeah. that's Boston. Yeah. And I think there are certainly people today, Tom Hooten, uh, distinguishes himself. You hear mm-hmm. and you think, oh, that's you know, Chris Martin. Yeah, yeah. Distinct, distinctive sound. Uh, Michael Sachs. I think they're just absolutely fantastic players out there. Uh, and now access to all of those people via YouTube right, is right. terrific. It's fantastic. Um, but back in the day, you had to go to a live concert for the most part. To or hear those or a record store. Or a record store. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you re- do you recall your first live concert, your first live experience? Oh, wow. Um, with an orchestra, I'm, I'm, with, a, with a major orchestra, I'm sure it was the L.A. Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't remember the specific orchestra. I mean, the specific concert. I do remember taking a, a, a date to hear, a girl to hear Bruckner's Seventh with the L.A. Philharmonic. Boy, that was uh, a risk. You were talking about risk earlier. That's a risk. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, she, she probably wasn't interested in me anyway, so it probably didn't make any difference. 
But but I just remember there's a there's one place in the first movement there's a big tootie and it ends with a second trumpet having a one measure alone that goes in there's a transition into the strings again, and and hearing my teacher play that just thinking wow you know that's so great yeah and and I you know I would of course be in the the nosebleed section, but I'd have binoculars and I'd look down at the first two players talking to each other and think what are they talking about <laughs> and, you know all that kind of stuff just right. like a starstruck right. kid sure. you know. So, uh, what about with uh, Stamp? And, and of course, now Stamp is known for his book. Mm-hmm. These days, he's known for his book, which right. I have found out uh, through Ronnie Rom mm-hmm. is needs a lot of explanation because the book doesn't really do justice to what Stamp intended. I mean, mm-hmm. there were some very specific ideas. Uh, did he use a lot of those exercises that are in that book? Did he use those sorts? Yeah, of Yeah, he did with me. I mean, the standard warm up, and, and and in those days, that was before the book, so. He would just hand me a sheet that would have the warm-up on it or, or this or that. And I think what what Stamp did, I mean, I use his principles a lot of staying up, staying down, and, mm-hmm. and a, a few things like that. Um, how he helped me, I think, was that it made my lips more supple, um, that I wasn't stiff quite as often. And I think it, it um, added more depth to my sound, you know, made my sound get a little bit less... My tendency, I think, was to have a bright sound. I sort of have a, a nasal voice, so I think that translated into sort of a bright sound, and so I think it helped with sound, too. Were you still studying with... Um, Stevens? Uh, Stevens. Um, no, no. At that time, I I, had, uh, I think it was just one summer, and, and Russ Kidd, you know, my roommate, uh-huh. said, yeah, you should try studying with Stamp, so... And how was he as a teacher? Was he more of a, a modeling kind of person? He would play it for you? He, if, if I remember correctly, he didn't play that much. I mean, he could still play. He didn't play any concerts or anything like that because he just taught all day. I think he played some. That was quite a while ago, but I think he played some during the lesson. But it was more he would just sort of talk about his ideas, and, and you would play things, and he'd tell you, especially like in terms of position and things like that, what you were doing wrong or what you could change you know he was and it's very interesting I mean another teacher that I had lessons from was Bob Duvall who taught at UCLA and Bob was the first trumpet player in the LA Philharmonic and um, it was actually a very very interesting section in the LA Philharmonic at that time because it was Bob Duvall and Irving Bush and Tom Stevens and Mario Guarneri and and yeah and it was a great section I mean a really great section and I think probably the best section in the world for Pops concerts they were amazing on Pops concerts but even the regular concerts they were fantastic and Bob and Irving were more sort of traditional very soft spoken gentlemen um, I mean if you want if you want to talk about the difference between Bob Duvall and Tom Stevens and, and they I mean, they had huge respect for each other but the difference was Tom Tom's reputation um, was as somebody who was really sort of tough, and and if you if you looked at his website or whatever, uh, and so the years later the LA Philharmonic trumpet section made him a, a a card business card that on the front it said Tom Stevens and on the back it said Go away, so <laughs> so. <coughs> so that was sort of Tom. Bob Duvall was the, the most <laughs> mild-mannered, soft-spoken, um, just wonderful gentleman with no ego at all. He's the only trumpet player I've ever met in my life who had absolutely no ego involved in his trumpet playing, which was really amazing. I mean, that's that's a in in terms of maturity. I don't know another trumpet player is that especially that maturity. Especially a principal player. Yeah, especially a principal player. Yeah, mm. and and one day during a lesson. At UCLA, he said, um, I have a new business card. Would you like to see my card? And I thought, Bob Duvall has a business card? And he handed mm-hmm. me this card, and it was it's all white, except just in small letters on the front, it says, my card. And that was that was his card. <laughs> so, But you would have Irving and, and Bob Duvall, who would show up at a rehearsal in um, wearing a tie and a coat. Um, and then you have Mario and Tom, who are like the young guns in town, you know, who are playing uh, jazz and doing modern music and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really, really interesting trumpet section. And did you get to play with that orchestra in that section? Yeah, I did. I did, yeah, which was a, an absolute thrill. I mean, I still feel really lucky to do that. And you did quite a bit. Uh, yeah, I, well, I'm not sure what quite a bit means, but yeah, I played... I played with them and, and normally of course when they have an extra player that means the big pieces like 
Heldenleben or Rite of Spring or Mahler sure. Second or something like that. So that was pretty great, yeah. So I'm thinking about who the conductors may have been during that time. Were there... mm. Well, the main, of course, the main conductor was Zubin Mehta, um, who conducted. I actually, I think it was the only time he conducted the orchestra. I got to play uh, six trumpet on Mahler Six with Claudio Obato. Mm. He was fantastic. Um, I played, um, I think it was the first time Simon Rattle conducted the orchestra with the Janacek Sinfonietta. That's the first time I met Alva Zudi because he was playing extra yeah. uh, with that too. Um, who else? Played under Leinsdorf. Uh, you know, I had a very interesting experience actually with Leinsdorf where they were doing a direct-to-disc recording of Prokofiev, Romeo, and Juliet. And mm-hmm. I was playing, I think it's, I, I forget if there are two or three B-flat trumpets. There's a cornet and then two or three B-flat trumpets. Three, I believe. Three, okay. So I was playing third. <clears throat> and um, this was direct-to-disc, meaning they did 20 minutes in one take. And if there was a, a mistake, it ruined the whole thing. So, I mean, a lot of pressure. And the way those guys played was phenomenal. But they had done, I think, two concerts at the Hollywood Bowl before they did the recording. And, and Third Trumpet, there's a place, um, I think it's the, the catacombs where there are some brass chords, like every every half note mm-hmm. that somebody comes in. And the Third Trumpet is the first of the trumpets to come in. And so on, on the, the concerts at the Hollywood Bowl, rehearsal and the concerts at the Hollywood Bowl were fine. And then... This was at the beginning of this 20-minute thing. And it takes, it, you know, if, if they had to stop, they'd have to retool, and it would take 20 minutes. So it was like a very, very big deal to stop. And so it came to my part. I came in my, on my note. I thought I played it fine. And Leinstorff stopped, and he glared at me. And and I, I turned to Irving and I said, did I do something wrong? You know, and because and, he was playing second, and he you know, sort of made some crack. And then Leinstorff said, he said something to the cellos, and then he looked at me and he said, your note, that's, why did you play a wrong note? And I said, uh, I played what's on the page, you know. And it turns out that what was written on the page was the wrong note. It should have been a D instead of a low oh, E. No. And But I had played the rehearsals and two concerts with that, and he hadn't noticed it. And that was in the orchestral library for probably 60 years before. So, so I wasn't totally to blame for Lucky that. Lucky you, to be yeah, one yeah, the one, yeah, 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 exactly, right yeah, and cost the orchestra thousands of dollars. Oh my goodness, yeah, that's a great story, though. I mean, that, uh, well, maybe, I not, mean maybe not the best, but yeah, you know, to, for your. But Leinstorf had you could tell he really had he had ears yeah. and he had knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. I've listened to another podcast, uh, and they talk about a lot of uh, people who have gone out to the the West Coast, uh, and namely a lot of people out of uh, the Bill Adams studio down at IU. Oh, right, yeah. For, mm-hmm. And people who had, worked, of course, worked with Jerry Hay, and a lot of those guys talk about the, the scene out there and the chamber mm-hmm. orchestra scene, and uh, boy, the competition in L.A. just seems like it must have been fierce from the very beginning. I mean, to be a trumpet player and to try to get work out there, yeah, and even more these days, because you know, work, session work especially becomes more and more limited. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned some session work this morning in the master class. Uh, what was your experience there with session work? Well, I got I got called with only a few exceptions, really rare exceptions. I just got called for the classical stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I was not a big studio player at all. So you have people like Malcolm McNabb, you know, who was number one for years and years and years. He was doing everything. And there were people who were, like Jerry Hay, you mentioned, and Rick Baptist and Warren Looney, who were doing more the, the commercial stuff. And so if you were, a, I was a classical trumpet player, and that's that's it. You know, I, I was not a flexible player who could play, well, I could sort of phrase jazz, but, but, you could but read, not you really. you could transpose, you could play. And well, play. yeah, yeah, exactly. But but there are so many people, you know, that can do that. So I, I, I basically got called for the sessions that were um, what they would call legit sessions, you know, people who could play classical music. So I did some Jerry Goldsmith scores and but again, 
you know, playing second or third or something like that. Not not one of the major players. But it was, I, in a way, I was lucky because I think there's some there were it, in those days some musicians who played so much that it was more like a business and they'd talk about their accounts with different contractors and things like that. And for me, since I didn't do very many sessions, when I would do a session, it was really fun, you know, because of the new experience and look at the screen while we're recording and all that kind of stuff. So, But your your focus still at this point is landing an orchestral position. Yes, yes. And so where did that happen? Well, I, um, I got a job with the San Antonio Symphony. I, I played extra with the Alley Philharmonic, but I got a job with the San Antonio mm-hmm. Symphony and was there for three years. How many auditions had you done prior to, to that orchestra? Um, not, not too many. Um, I, the first audition I took, I was extremely lucky because auditions in those days were far different than today. Today, they're much more controlled and probably much fairer than mm-hmm. they used to be. Uh, the first audition I did was for actually for Tom Stevens' spot, mm-hmm. and that's before I even knew that Tom was in the LA Philharmonic, but he'd left the Dallas Symphony second trumpet to come to Los Angeles, and so they had an audition for second trumpet, and the conductor was Donald Johannes, and he, um, so I, I think I was 18 or 19, something like that, and they had an audition at the Musicians Union, so it's not like that you would have it today. And probably not screened? Not screen, no, nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was basically for it was uh, listed in the in the union paper. So I went down to audition. Basically, he heard strings all day long. I was the only trumpet player mm-hmm. that day, and he had evidently there was a ride that was going to pick him up. They had allotted thirty thirty minutes um, for the end of the audition, and it turned out that I was the only person there. So I came out and I played a little bit from the Vasily Brandt. Um, mm-hmm. Um, concert, uh, not concert piece. concert piece. Yeah, uh, the second one, and then and then, and there was no music um, at all. They had no orchestral music there because I think they thought no trumpet players would come. So, but I knew I had memorized basically the first three books from the Bartold series oh, sure. for memory, which has the main stuff. And so he just said, "Well, do you know this?" And I said, "Yes." So I played it, and he said, "You know this." So I played it, and so he was asking even like, "Could you play the?" Uh, scherzo movement from Tchaikovsky Fourth, and so I played that from memory. He said, "Could you play second trumpet?" So I played that from memory because I just knew all all the things. Mm-hmm. And so it was really odd to me after, now thinking about it now that that he um, there was no way that I was ready for an orchestra, you know, orchestra job like that. But he thought I've got. I'm sure he thought I've got 30 minutes to kill. This guy has his orchestral excerpts memorized, so I'll just ask him to play these excerpts. Did you play well? Um, yeah, I think I played. Pretty well. I mean, I, I don't remember. The one thing I remember, actually, I think I played well enough that he kept asking sure. things. But the one thing I remember was he said, could you play the, and I had worked on the Strauss book, he said, could you play the high B-flat that comes in on the second trumpet, concert B-flat, comes in on the second trumpet, you know, the high piano thing. And I said, okay. And I went, bah, just perfect. <laughs> and he said, could you do it one more time? And I went, bye. And he said, one more time. And I went, bia. <laughs> You so, had it so I, I think I'm the only person, probably in audition history, who who did all three possibilities on that note. That that's in terms of playing. I think that's the only thing I remember from that audition, wow. actually. Yeah. Wow. In terms of how I played. Yeah, how unfair too to do that at the end of the day when I always heard of strings before. Yeah, yeah. So did mine. Yeah, been yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you play one note? Yeah. So. so. Um, so San Antonio, you yeah. were there for. Th- I was there for three years. years. Yeah, um, I the first year I was there as um, associate principal trumpet, mm-hmm. um, but the first trumpet player was getting ready to retire, and the political situation there was um, very tense, shall we say, because the conductor was sort of one of the old time dictatorial mm-hmm. conductors, Toscanini kind of person. Yeah, without the chops. <laughs> uh, but, and so, um, so actually, my first year, even though I was associate, I played first on Mahler's Fifth and, you know, a bunch of other things. Um, and then my second year, Glenn, uh, Glenn Fisher was in the orchestra my second year. Glenn, who for many years was first trumpet with San Francisco, mm-hmm. which was just great. I mean, he was so funny. And there's still, I don't know if you know anything about Glenn Fisher, but there's so many great Glenn Fisher stories. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of of things, so that was a great year, and then uh, he was only there for one year, and then and then my third year was my last year, and I I mentioned to the class today, and this is 
probably something that most people don't talk about, but um, I was fired in, in my third year. And I had planned to come back to L.A. anyway, but, um, but that for sure made it you know, yeah. positive that I was going to come back to L.A. Um, I went back to L.A. Um, for a year, uh, which is what I had planned to do anyway, and, and freelanced some in L.A., and then uh, went to Utah and had a two-year position with Utah. Was that or, the same, or left after two two years? The same point when Ed Cord was out there. No, actually, Ed replaced me. No, no kidding. Yeah, so I was there just before Ed. Okay. Yeah, and I'm going to see Ed. Um, today's Friday, right? I'm yes. going to see him tomorrow night for dinner. Well, how about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Funny how things work. Yeah. So, um, life as a soloist. You, you had mentioned how much you had wanted to become a soloist. Yeah, that's uh, so. I was in Utah for two years. Uh, Marisa Bravino was the conductor and uh, left Utah to come back to L.A. to be a composer and a soloist, but really a soloist. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't doing much composing at that time at all. And um, so I, I sort of realized, and, and this was realized, that when I came back to L.A., I might be bouncing checks and struggling financially you know, for a while, and that certainly was the case because I had to sort of get a freelance scene going again and try and get solos. And, and I had done made one record um, before I got back to L.A., which was with Oregon, but really didn't have much of a calling card at all. And so, I mean, I wrote to, to tons of teachers at schools and things like that, and at the beginning was unable to line anything up, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but I got a teaching job, and just before I got back, Tom Stevens helped get me a teaching job at Cal State Northridge. And so that was a little bit of income, and I could do a recital. I think I did a recital every semester there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, gradually got, got a few things going and tried to make more records and had to pay for the records myself. Sure. Um, but just kept, kept sort of moving forward, trying to get more things to happen. What kind of repertoire were you Well, I, especially at the, at the beginning, I was trying to, to record pieces that had not been recorded before. So that mm -hmm. I wanted to have the feeling that the records were were maybe helping me to try and get some solo things, but also was helping the trumpet literature, mm -hmm. you know, or because trumpet literature is not that great compared to string literature mm -hmm. or piano literature, but there are some good pieces out, sure. out there. So um, I recorded, uh, I usually did not record really avant-garde pieces, especially back back then, but more conservative pieces like the Three Bagatelles of Fisher Tall oh. and... I did um, actually the Vern Reynolds music for five trumpets with the LA Philharmonic trumpet wow. section um, and, and things like that. And those were pieces that, although they had been played some, had not been recorded at that time. Mm -hmm. So Any French repertoire that uh, drew your Yeah, I, did, I think I did the Boats of Caprice because I had studied that a lot with Tom. And, and so I did that. And um, I can't think of anything else from mm -hmm. the French repertoire. But I might have. <laughs> so let's talking about let's talk about your teaching uh, that you picked up with the help of Tom. Oh, okay. Uh, what kind of studio was it? Are we talking about majors that were coming through your studio? Yeah, I, I, there were some trumpet majors and I guess some trumpet minors maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the first sort of permanent teaching experience for me, and it was actually a really good um, good experience. Mm -hmm. Sort of low pressure, but it, that's a te different teaching job than somebody might have today, let's say in the Midwest, in that it was, you got paid by the student. It was not a regular oh. teaching job. Right. So if you had, I, I have no idea now how much it paid per student, but let's say it paid in those days $50 per student. If you had five students, then you'd be making $250 a week. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it, that kind of teaching, and I taught at USC later, it was the same kind of teaching job. It was like a supplement to other work that you were doing, you know, as, mm -hmm. as a player. As opposed to, um, like, let's say John Rommel or Ed Cord at, or Joey Tartell at Indiana mm -hmm. University, they have a salary and a regular job. Mm -hmm. So you think about your evolution of uh, your teaching and your students through that time. If you look back at where you started as a teacher, mm -hmm. what kind of changes could you observe now in your teaching style mm -hmm. from beginning to... Well, you, you've not finished teaching, but... Yeah, even, yeah, yeah, even up through now, how would yeah. you how would you think that's changed? Um, I I think just in general th that I know more now. You know, I know more a lot more about Baroque music mm -hmm. because I did a teaching exchange with Ed Tarr and taught at the Scola Cantorum in Basel. So I know a lot more about Baroque phrasing and how that influences 
other things. For example, just thinking about Baroque phrasing, um, I had made me realize that, that brass players in general make all of their phrasing choices, usually make all their phrasing choices dependent upon melody and not a, upon harmony. And, and if you think about certain techniques that were used in the Baroque or Renaissance period, it has to do with harmony rather than, than, than melody. Um, so I'd say th- things like that. There's an awful lot that I teach now that's, that's just very similar to what I taught then. It's basically what I was taught by, by Irving and, and, and Stamp and, and Stevens. Um, you know, just very sort of standard stuff. And then if somebody's working on a solo, then I think maybe I have more depth in the way I would approach a piece now than if I was 20 years old. I certainly hope so. Um, Sure, I mean, just process of maturity. Yeah. Chronological progression is going to get us... Yeah, so I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any radical change in in the way I teach it all, but just... um, I think I still stick to the basics, and and I learn. For example, uh, like if if I if I hear a master class um, from somebody else, and and there's something that they do that's really good, then I'll incorporate that in, into my own teaching. Uh, Fritz Damro, for example, uh, I've heard uh, who used to play with the concerto balance, great player and great teacher. I've heard him do some master classes where he has a breathing exercise that he does that I use a lot now. Uh, with students, and I, ninety-five percent of the time, um, I'll credit Fritz. The other five percent, five percent, I forget to. Um, well, well, let's count this as the other five percent. Maybe this will get out there. Okay, it's a great. Okay, good, good. Um, a, a breathing exercise or something he can do to work on low register or, or or whatever. So I think the more I'm around and the more I talk to people, um, then that gives me a few extra tools to use. Mm-hmm. There's something I read in one of your blog posts that really resonated beautifully with me, and it speaks to your humility, and it's, it's you said, I'm not an expert. Oh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. And an expert who knows, is somebody who knows a lot about a little, mm-hmm. and you said, you are a person who knows a lot, or a little, a little about, about a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, it, it takes somebody who's very comfortable with where they are mm-hmm. to say that. This is what I have to offer. And, you know, I think that makes, there's such a variety of teachers out there. And I tell my own students, look, I don't know everything. And I admit freely that I, I'm still seeking out answers to a lot of questions. And I tell them, look, there's some things I just don't know. Yeah, but let's sure. find out the answers together. Let's get there. Yeah. But anyways, that comment that, that you had put in your blog post, I think, boy, that's that was beautifully said, beautifully written. And I think, you know, it's okay to be that way. It's okay, and especially in a, in a world today where a trumpet player has to do so many things mm-hmm. to be a working trumpet player, that really might be a better approach. I, well, I'm not sure. I mean, it, I think that depends on each person. So, I mean, there's some experts, like if you take an orchestral player, I mean, you na- name your favorite orchestral player, Tom Hooten, Chris Martin, Mike Sachs, or whatever. They're an expert in what they do, and they're great in what they do. So I played in some orchestras, you know, I, I wasn't great, but I got by. Um, I played some Baroque music. Um, I was okay, got by, certainly learned a lot mm-hmm. of stuff, played a lot of chamber music, some solos. I wasn't Hoken Hardenberger, whatever, but I've done enough of, of a, a whole bunch of different things that I at least sort of have a, a clue about how you phrase Baroque music and why that's different from modern music. But and, I think, you know, I, I look at that, if I were to come to study with you, I'd think, boy, the opportunities that I'm going to have to get a lot of a variety of answers from one source mm-hmm. is is much better. You know, you're going to have those answers, and and or I, I could, or I could guide you to somebody who exactly. does who yes. has them. Yeah, but I think you know that's uh, there's so much yet to learn about everything, and you, you need to think about Baroque trumpet playing. It's not just the phrasing, but to think the color, the sound between yeah. the the original instrument and the modern trumpet is. Mm-hmm so vast from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. You know, that fortissimo dynamic uh, is very different. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, you, we can't temper those things with a modern instrument because you'd have to change the whole orchestra as well. Yeah. Everybody else on yeah. period instruments. Yeah. So well, I, I diverged a little bit. I might no, that's that okay. Yeah, 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 that's but, okay. No, that's okay. Yeah. No problem. So uh, I'm impressed with, uh, you probably teach in person still, but you also mm-hmm. teach via Skype. I'm starting to do that, yes. Yeah. How, uh-huh. how does that work? You like that? 
Yeah, so far I think it works very well, actually. Um, I mean, you wouldn't think so, but it does. Um, I think probably the best is to be to be in the same room with somebody. But for example, like you know, I mentioned when I was young that, that you know I had all these heroes, and so when I was in San Antonio, I flew to Cleveland one time. Um, and had a lesson with Edelstein, and I flew to Chicago one time and had a lesson with Herseth. Um, if it was today, um, if they were doing Skype teaching, I could just be in, in my yeah living room and and have a lesson, and it wouldn't cost me uh, you know four or five hundred dollars for the airfare, and then right. the cost of the lesson and all of that kind of stuff. Now. It's not as good as when you're in in person, obviously. Maybe there'll be a, a day when it will be as good. Who knows what, what happens with all the technology and AI and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but right now it's not as good, but it's I think it's a good um, good second place. Mm-hmm. And so, so far, for me at least, and I think for the people that have had Skype lessons, I think, I think I've been able to help people. Favorite orchestral piece? That you've actually gotten to perform? Oh man, I, I don't I don't think I could say that. There's so many great great pieces. Well, you mentioned you're a fan of Prokofiev, and I know Romeo and Juliet is just what an yeah. exquisite piece of music. That's a great piece. But I mean, the Mahler symphonies, the Tchaikovsky, there's Brahms. I mean, I could think of maybe certain orchestral experiences that mm. that were great. Um, but there's so much great music uh, that I I it's sort of like what's your favorite. You could have maybe a favorite author at a particular time, but over the course of time, uh, and you know, how can you rate a certain book by one author against a certain book by another author that are just both great masterpieces? That's hard. That's hard for me, and and I wish I could. That's a really good question. I wish I could say, but I don't think I have a favorite piece. Well, you know, I guess it could be kind of a loaded question, and and I've kind of shied away from asking even my students pieces about mm-hmm. that. I might ask them, you know. What do you like? Maybe not who's yeah. your favorite. Uh, and I actually encourage my students not to get into a who's better, Rizzuti or Sergei. Yeah, yeah, right, but, right. Uh, everybody's enjoying so many when great that, players. Yeah, when they're that good. Them, yeah, you know. And if you want to rank somebody higher than somebody else, that's fine. But yeah, let's just enjoy everybody that's out there. And yeah. boy, what a uh, you still mentioned uh, Hardenberger mm-hmm. and uh, Ole Edvard Antonsen mm-hmm. and oh, so many great players. Tom yeah. Scotch, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, as well, but. Um, have you gotten to perform any of your own compositions? Um, when I was a player, yeah, of course I played animal ditties mm-hmm. fairly often. Um, I what else did I play? Uh, well, actually, this piece that you guys did today, mm-hmm. um, Fanfare FT eighteen forty four, that I wrote for my son's table tennis mm-hmm. team, uh, we did the premiere before a. Uh, a table tennis match, yeah. uh, you know, when the teams were there and the public yeah. was there and everything like that to get the team revved up, and so I actually played on that. But I would not call that really a, <laughs> a performance. This is a fifteen-second piece, and sure. you know, um, have you conducted any of your own works? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've conducted the, my first concerto, uh, which is with brass ensemble. Um, I've conducted that several times. Mm-hmm. Dave Hickman, I think the last time I did it, maybe Dave played. There was another time I conducted it recently. The different soloists. So, do you um, enjoy the rehearsal process? Um. Yes, yes, I do. That's sort of hesitant. Uh, it's a little bit <laughs> I hesitant. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be, I, essentially, because I'm a wimp, I think, because um, I I know what it's like sitting in an orchestra, and I know that orchestral players a lot of times just don't like conductors. Um, Quite often it's justified. Some of the times it's not. And so if I if I conduct a piece, I sort of have it inside of me. You know, as soon as I step on a podium, some people are not going to like me. You know, <laughs> and I just I I'd rather just say, hey, let's have a good time. Sure. So so if I do a, a brass ensemble, then that's not a problem because mm-hmm. it's like you know we're all in it together. We're all sure. brass players. We're all we all hang. You know, and all that kind of stuff. Do you ever find yourself on the podium? rehearsing one of your own pieces and thinking, why did I write that? Or I'm going to reharmonize that. Or I'm going to re-put that in a different meter or a different feel. Or do, do you ever start to think about Well, actually, there was one There was one piece, not in this. I was not conducting this, um, but actually the first trumpet concerto, where in in the original version, I had it in 6-8, and then I changed it to 3-4. Mm. 
uh, and it was just straight eighth notes, but that I wanted a slightly different feel to it. Um, yeah, I've, I've had I've had that happen. I actually had a, a sort of a strange out of body experience in a way that I I can't quite explain. I'm not sure what happened was what was the cause of this, but it, I was still playing. And it was the, my last year of, of playing. And it was with Summit Brass. And I was conducting this piece of mine called Concertina, which is for trumpet, trombone, and brass ensemble. And it was on the concert. And the, the first movement, it was, it was Tim Morrison was playing and Larry Zalkin was playing. Wow. And between the... Heavies. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, There's right? that word. <laughs> the, yeah, absolute heavies. Right. And the I think the first three movements were part one, and then movements four and five were part two. And so what I what I did was I connected the first movement to the second movement with a trumpet cadenza, and then I think maybe trombone connect, cadenza mm-hmm. connecting the third movement. And so the first movement had some time changes and stuff, and so I was concentrating on this, but Larry and, and Tim were just nailing it to the wall. And so... So I was, you know, I was thinking about giving up the trumpet, and then it came to the trumpet cadenza, and Tim was playing this trumpet cadenza, and this voice, I'm going to sound like I'm nuts here, but (laughs) this voice spoke to me, and it said, your time is past. And it was not like a a negative thing, it was just like a statement of fact, because here's this guy playing so incredibly great, and it's like, okay, you know, you've you've had a good time, your time has passed. And, and and it sort of came in and went because then I had to start the second movement, but it was a really interesting experience. I've, wow. I've only had two experiences like that, and the other was um, for a piece, uh, amazing, many variations on Amazing Grace, mm-hmm. where Dave Hickman called me up and he said, "I want you to write a piece for Summit Brass, but I want it to be a short piece. I don't want it to be brilliant or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like an Irish folk song." Or something, and I and I said, okay, great. So I and that was like at night that he called, you know, ten o'clock at night or something. And I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning. In my mind, I was singing "Amazing Grace," and I thought, wow, that's it, that's, that's my it. song, yeah. Wow. So now all your listeners know that I'm a mental case. No, no, it's, <laughs> what a great insight yeah. to uh, you know. We think about our means of expression. Uh, with me, it's still mainly trumpet. Mm-hmm. With you now, it's the the pen to paper. It's putting the, the notes down on the yeah. page. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're still creating some great music. Trying to. Yeah, yeah. So, any uh, of course, you've given a lot of great uh, insights and some advice on some things. But anything that comes to mind now that you might say to a, a younger player or anybody really along their path about. The, um, yeah, you mean if they want to be a professional player or... Sure. Yeah, or, or if you want to be good... Yeah, or... yeah. You know, I think... I mean, one thing I, I talk about a lot, because um, I've done a lot of reading on this, um, is I think talent at times tends to be overrated and a work ethic tends to be underrated. Um, so if... I mean, there's a wonderful story I read about Derek Jeter, the great baseball player with the New York Yankees, that when he was a rookie and he went to spring training... After a couple of weeks, uh, supposedly he called his mother and said, Mom, I'm, I'm coming home. These guys are so talented. Um, they're so good. I don't have a chance. And his mom said, they may all be more talented than you, but there's no excuse for any of them working harder than you. Wow. Yeah, which is, which is great. So if you, look, if you look at people who are your role models for trumpet, you know, the great players, Hulk and whatever, um, if, if you tell them they're so talented, that's almost like an insult because it discounts the incredible amount of hard work they put sure. into it. So I think, I think if I'd say anything, it's, it's work really hard and work really smart. And the really smart aspect of work is to do something simple like a warm-up and make it really beautiful, not just sort of going through it and playing it with a tense sound, but playing it with a really beautiful sound. And, mm-hmm. and I think if, if, if you have real passion for what you're doing it's not hard work so when i was i mean when i was a student Amen. yeah when i was a student i'd practice i'd practice six hours a day during the summers when i had when i had time but it wasn't work i mean it was fun i would re- i would have rather done that than go out and you know play baseball or go to a movie or, or something like that and i thought that was pretty good until i talked to hokan and he practiced 10 hours a day you know, so you so you think Hokan, you know, Hokan's so lucky. He's he's so great. Sure. Well, obviously he is lucky. He's got tons of talent, but he worked harder than anybody else. Uh. You know, he worked really, really, really hard. 
So, so I'd say you know those two things: passion and and um, the ability to love what you're doing and work really, really hard at it. You know, to try and try and have the uh, approach that you're going to be the first one to open up the school. You know, at seven o'clock in the morning and the last one to leave. So I had I actually um, I. I um, gave some lessons to Ula Edward Anhunsen when he was when he was younger, but a, a funny thing was that I had when I was teaching in Oslo a couple of years ago, I had the, that's how I met him was I did, I was doing a, a thing in Europe and he was like a seventeen year old student who played for me at, at a master class played the Shane perfect wow. yeah the first movement and and uh, I I just recently had a student whose father <laughs> was in that class with Ula Edward Anhunsen. <laughs> And and she said that like that you know the most of the guys they'd be going out for a beer after after school was over and they'd say well Edward you know come on out with us have a beer and say no I'm going to stay here and practice that's why he's really Edward Anderson wow. and what a fabulous player oh great player yeah and he really looks like he's having so much fun while he's playing too yeah I think yeah that's another reason I like <laughs> yeah, his I think playing so. it's not just that it's beautiful playing but he just truly looks like he's enjoying himself yeah. on stage yeah yeah it's a big difference yeah. I think when you play that good, it's easy to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Tony, I'm so grateful for you sharing everything. This oh, afternoon. I'm grateful to be here. It's yeah. It's been a great morning. So, I've really a, had a great time. Well, thank you so much. And it's for nice to meet you, too. Well, thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studio HFL. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.